I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Hello and welcome to the Future of Asia podcast. Today, we'll be discussing a recent McKinsey Global Institute report, Pixels of Progress, which shares findings from a bespoke MGI dataset that breaks the world down into more than 40,000 microregions, a view 230 times more granular than a country perspective. This microregional perspective provides a much more nuanced view of development, enhancing our understanding of global progress in ways that can help businesses and governments make better, more targeted decisions. We are joined by two of the report's authors, Dr. Jonathan Wotzel and Chris Bradley, both of whom are senior partners and directors at the McKinsey Global Institute. Welcome to you both. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Angela. Before we delve into the findings, perhaps you could start with a more general overview of what was uncovered through this research. Chris, would you like to share? Well, what we uncovered was a startling picture of human progress. And while the averages are great, for example, income across the world increased by nearly $6,000 and life expectancy by 9.3 years, it was only when you looked at the picture at a, such a granular level, you could see just how astounding the progress was. So let me bring that to life for you. In our 40,000 micro regions, we chose a zone called the blue zone. And this was places that were by the standards of the year 2000 in the top 30% for both income and life expectancy. So you had to have above 8,300 income and you had to have life expectancy of 72 and a half years. So this is the places of the world where human flourishing was at its best point. And so in the year 2000, there was 1.3 billion people in this place. But by the year 2019, there was three and a half billion people in that place. So the world had moved from 21% of people living at that standard to 34% living at that standard. Just an absolutely astounding progress. And you see on the opposite end of the spectrum, the corollary, which is what we call the orange zones, where you were in the bottom 30% for those variables in the year 2000. So you had to live less than 65 and a half years and have less than 2,400 income. There was 1.1 billion people there in the year 2000, but just 400 million in the year 2019, despite population growth. So we went from 19% of the world in that zone to just 7% of the world. So what we saw was a mass migration of humanity to high levels of well-being, but it wasn't a migration to different places. It was a migration to a better place of human flourishing. Thanks so much for sharing that perspective, Chris. Could you tell us a little more about the advantages of a micro-regional perspective when looking at human development and economic development? as compared to a country-level analysis? Let me jump in for a second, Angela, because I think that what Chris is leaving mid on set is like the central role of Asia in all of this. And is that the growth that we've seen globally, the 1.3 to the 3.5 billion, fair chunk of that is Asia. Now, of course, there's China. We can't ignore it. It's there. And that was probably about a billion <laughs> of it. But the point being is that there's actually an entire other China out there. And the reason we don't see it is because it's so dispersed. It's at the micro level. And that over hundreds, 
thousands of micro regions has been an untold story that we think this research brings to life. And of course, it's not only in China, it's, it's uh, in Asia. You have a massive misclassification, if you will, of India. This sort of saying there's literally 100 million Indians we somehow missed. <laughs> when we sort of generalize and say that India is still a developing country, of course it is overall on average. But we found 100 million Indians who should be in the blue. And that's an astonishing sort of fact. And that's not, of course, only India. There's plenty of places across Asia where we see that dynamic. So this granular view really comes to life when we start looking at regions in the world. And I think we'll say a little bit more about this later, how interesting the convergence is of regions. But I got to say the dynamic, the motor impulse and the economic growth fall ways a little bit towards Asia. And so that granularity of growth is something we should celebrate as a distinctive feature of this region. No question. In fact, if you look at the blue, 2.2 billion more people enjoyed life in blue in 2019 than they did in 2000. Exactly, Jonathan, 1.1 billion of those were from China. But there was 320 million other people in Asia who were in that class. So you're right, the 10% of Indians from 0.1% blue in India in 2000 to 10% blue in 2019. And these are literally first world living standards. So if there was a country that had 140 million people in it that was at that standard, we'd be celebrating this economic miracle. But because it's hidden inside a much bigger country, we kind of don't see it. And then don't underplay the importance of Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand. They added 130 million people into blue as well. Now, by the way, I'm instinctively more often referring to kind of income growth. But don't forget, this is about longevity as well. It's about actually the quality of life as measured by GDP per capita and life expectancy. And the results were just as stunning there. We've talked about the journey to blue, but let me talk about what's equally important, which is the journey out of orange, which is ultimately the first task of development is to alleviate human suffering and poverty that happens at that orange level. And so the greatest goal and the greatest miracle is people leaving the orange zone. Now, I've already described how in 2000, there's 1.1 billion people in those orange places. And in fact, 43% of them were in India at the time. 1.1 billion, if we just followed the population growth in those micro regions, that would be 1.6 now. So we don't have 1.6, we have 0.4. So we have one quarter of that. So in other words, three quarters of people left the orange. But here's the miracle. India was 43% of orange and now is 0%. India does not have any orange zones. And in fact, 95% of the remaining 400 million people, they're in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's the last locus. But Asia, in some ways, almost finished exiting these places. There's still a few places that are orange, but they're really very few and far between. So 650 million people in India are no longer in orange, and 220 million people in other parts of emerging Asia are no longer in orange. So now have they all, like China, traversed the path to blue? No, not yet, but they can. If we can give them the energy, the infrastructure, the capital and the urbanization that they need to get there. A key notion from the report is that economic progress is not uniform across regions and even within countries. In fact, growth rates are highly dependent upon local conditions. So what are the implications of this, especially for stakeholders like governments and businesses? The implication is, first of all, is that local matters. What you do locally really does have a disproportionate impact on both your economic and your social well-being or life expectancy. And we saw that. The quality of the 
local performance really drove the outcomes relative to the importance of the national performance. So I think that is a so what for what we in political science would call subsidiarity, sort of the idea that you should devolve decision-making to the lowest level you can to get the best outcomes. And that this research would tend to support that, that the quality of the local environment is really what drove the outcomes. That's an, what's one takeaway. I think obviously for corporations, it's about sort of understanding that and being able to tailor their approaches, both in terms of understanding where exactly is their opportunity and their market or their supply chain. And then how would they think about it going forward and what approaches might work best for them going to market for investing and so forth. So yeah, I think pretty far reaching in terms of the implications. So we did a regression to try and see how much of the income growth in a micro region you could explain just with the country GDP. And the answer is really low. You can only explain 20% of the variation with the country. So in other words, 80% of the answer is local. And I think to Jonathan's point, this really, really matters for how policy is set. But let me try and bring it to life by using two Asian countries that border each other, Laos and Cambodia. So life expectancy in Laos is about 67.9 years and in Cambodia, 69.8. So they look like they're two years apart. But if we break it down into all the micro regions we have across those two countries, actually the difference is from 61.4 years to 74.6 years. So actually the difference is much bigger than the two. It's actually 13 years. And when you get down to it, you see the pattern of that is there's not a hard border between these countries. There's micro regions everywhere. Being close to a city really matters. But you start seeing just the basic local impact, for example, availability of doctors that just can't explain at the national level, but only can explain at the local level. What one thing we would recommend all governments to do, as well as companies for that matter, is just look for the bright spots, look for those places that are getting it right, that are having outsized development, and try and learn from those and try and make the lessons from those places apply more broadly. One of the really interesting findings was that when we looked at maps, when we looked at national borders, and we looked at the proximity of uh, both outperforming microregions and I think underperforming ones too. What we discovered is that national borders don't matter as much as you might think. In fact, it's much more important to be close to another outperforming microregion than to be part of a country. And you can see this in border towns, I suppose. And this idea that Simply proximity affects being around other successful microregions that does tend to build a cluster. And that the line in the sand that we've artificially drawn 100 or 120 years ago that divides one country from another may not be as important. Now, it's unquestionably true that in some environments that it absolutely does stand out. But we think it's actually quite a hopeful message in the sense that if we focus on the quality of the local environment and learning from those around us and sort of building up that virtual cycle of economic development, investment, productivity, that there's a lot there. So it was quite striking when we sort of tried to overlay the national lines on these clusters and we discovered not so much. Yeah, for example, coastalness really matters probably more than which country you're in. So these attributes that are fundamentally important. Taking this a step further, can this level of granular analysis be applied to examine other issues like carbon emissions, educational achievement, sustainable development? And if it does, what would that entail exactly? Well, I would talk more about in places like India, the alleviation of energy poverty and access to basic 
heating and cooling and mechanization as being the first thing. And that is very, very clear on the map. In well-developed countries, you get about one in 50 people work in agriculture. India is still 55%, 60%. So you can see that on the map. And part of the progress of humanity is urbanization. Now, China had a massive urbanization journey. India is only halfway through its one. And that's going to bring extraordinary changes. And will bring extraordinary changes to the patterns of energy use as well, which will be just absolutely astounding to watch. And just remember, let's go back to one of the core facts of our report is that 50% of all economic growth happened on 1% of the Earth's surface. So this is about getting things right in very few places. Now, the difference is, of course, those places are everywhere. They're in 130 countries. And it's going to be no different. It's going to be very focused places that absorb most people and most growth. And they're the ones that are disproportionately going to matter. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. I'm not sure whether we've talked about this much, but our own methodology to identify economic points is literally points of light. (laughs) So we use light from outer space to see where was the activity. And we fact-checked, of course, but I mean, it was kind of almost poetic in sort of seeing the lights come on across the world as being an indication of what actually we as a species are doing. And it's very widespread. But yeah, we want to get underneath that, of course. We want to understand why the lights came on. Which piece of that local puzzle was the thing that unlocked the growth? And we have an aspiration to understand more, whether it's availability of resources or it's a governance issue. I think that's a very interesting question. Proximity effects, geography. I mean, there could be a lot of bunch of reasons why a local place starts to get better. And I'll speak from my Chinese experience and sort of one looks very, China's very logical situation. It's like, fine, it grows down the coast and goes up the rivers. And that's kind of where it is. When you take a look at a map of India, you don't see that. You just see a patchwork quilt, or as we sometimes call it, multipolar urban development or mud, because that's what it looks like through a patch of mud at the wall and splatter. So what's the rhyme and reason? How does that go there? And I think it's a really important question because we're not only looking at the income effects, because the income effects are material and are important. And we sort of spend a lot of our time talking about that. But as Chris was mentioning also, that there is this impact on life expectancy. And we have seen a huge improvement, nine years of median life expectancy over the life of this study. And that's amazing. And where did that come from? And even more that part we found was that 50% came from income, but 50% came from what we'll call innovation, which is essentially changing the relationship between life expectancy and income, which says somehow we got more for less. So we got more life expectancy for our GDP buck or income buck, whatever. So how did that happen? What innovations, what policies, what happened? But we observe it now and we observe it as a very global, widespread phenomenon, which then leads us to think about things like transmission effects. How do these flows happen? I mean, they're very important because we're so widely distributed. If we can't figure out how we actually managed to simultaneously improve life expectancy through innovation around the entire world, well, we run certain risks, of course, not being able to do that anymore if we do something to the system that enabled that to happen. So I think there's a whole agenda here about understanding why something happened and then how do we keep it happening? I love your point, Jonathan, about luminosity and goes to the centrality of energy. And all of this is literally the correlate you look for when you're trying to see economic change is how bright the place is at night. And what we've got is a world now that's getting brighter and brighter and more evenly so. When we started this study, 
the world was a two-humped camel in terms of income distribution, but also life expectancy distribution. And by the end of the study, we're all on the same curve. So we're just increasingly moving to a world, we're in it together. These old notions of third world and first world, frankly, don't work anymore. We're on a curve and our human project is about now bringing prosperity and longevity to all people. And in fact, nothing was more encouraging in the report to us than the fact that the life expectancy gains in the bottom decile of income were three to four times faster than they were in the top decile of income. So what we're seeing is a a real bringing together of the world. There's a lot of talk about inequality. It's a very popular topic. One thing we found in our study is that when you measure inequality at a global level, so you take away the country borders, it massively reduced. It, it almost halved since the 80s. Now, with globalization, it's brought us a challenge of within borders of maybe exacerbating some of those challenges. But when you look at the world, we're actually seeing a world that's more together, more unified, more energized, longer lived, and hopefully happier. Thanks so much, Chris and Jonathan, for highlighting the key findings from Pixels of Progress. It's clear that in a world that is increasingly global and local at the same time, untethering from a country or national level perspective, which a micro-regional perspective allows us to do, would aid in dealing with issues that are increasingly transnational. Thanks again, Chris and Jonathan, for joining us on the Future of Asia podcast. It was great to have you on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's our pleasure, Angela. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.